0: God changes your life, changes your thoughts, changes your desires, and changes your interests, and it comes out of God's Word. It's really learning to know God out of His Word. You're listening to the Faith Matters Podcast with Steve McKinley. Hello, everyone. You're watching the Faith Matters Podcast. We're glad to have you with us. My name is Steve McKinley, and this is Tom Baker, my special guest now here in the month of March. We've been spending—this uh, is our third week now. We're spending a whole month talking about historical evidence for uh, the Old Testament, and specifically three big events in the Old Testament. And so we've looked at evidence for the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob— yep. Um, and, and their uh, nomadic lifestyle, mm-hmm. and we, we did go back and find some things there. And then last week, we looked at uh, evidence for the Exodus, so we're going to follow that up this week with, uh, look, with the topic of Mount Sinai. And uh, you might be thinking, what is Mount Sinai? And Mount Sinai is a very significant place. It's actually a mountain that's mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, and specifically in, in uh, Exodus, and, uh, and the other uh, books of the of the books of Moses and uh, Mount, Mount Sinai is where the children of Israel went after they came out of uh, Egypt um, they, they crossed the Red Sea and uh, went to Mount Sinai and that's where they met with God and the Bible says that that they met with God Moses met with God on the top of the mountain and that was where he received the law, which we know today as the Mosaic Law, and that's where he received the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law are foundational to Western civilization. And so this is a very um, important event. And um, and and so we have Tom here to discuss this with us. And uh, Tom, you're you have a great interest in archaeology. Yeah. And in, uh, in evidence for, well, specifically biblical evidence for ancient history. Yep, so. And uh, you're studying right now um, archaeology at uh, Trinity College. Yep. You're just finishing
1: up. Yep. You are writing your dissertation right I now. I am correct? in the middle of it, yep. do write oh. my last chapter up now, a dry of coffee. So that should be done in the next month or so. Okay, yeah. and
0: uh, we mentioned last week uh, Tom has traveled extensively around the Middle East yeah. and um, and so we're, we're, I'm sitting here with someone who's experienced, someone who's who's taken a keen interest in these things and uh, happy to have Tom's expertise here with us. And uh, I know I'm going to learn more things this week about Mount Sinai. Tom's going to have a lot of things to share with us here. But Tom, uh, I know we've talked
1: a little bit about your YouTube channel. Could you just mention that again for us? Okay, yeah. Thanks again for having me, Steve. Uh, my channel, of course, I've mentioned previously. It's only just started up. It's called Gospel and Spade. You know, if you go onto YouTube, put that into the search engine, and that should come up. And at the moment, we're dealing with—I'm dealing every week, every Friday—with short videos on important Old Testament artifacts. And so they're about two, three minutes long, not very long. So I would encourage you, if you're interested, go and take a look. You know, leave a like, leave a comment if you have any suggestions or ideas for future videos. And also, please subscribe because it does really help out. And hopefully, in the future, Lord willing, we'll ex- I'll expand into different subjects and longer topics. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, they're very interesting. Um, I-, I think if you take the time to watch watch these videos, these weekly videos. It will enlighten you to stuff that you never knew was out there. I mean, there is uh, there is an, uh, evidence from ancient times that uh, make reference to the Bible and biblical events and those things. It's incredibly interesting. And, uh, we, Tom, we've actually been watching them with our children. Yeah. Um, our, our children take an interest in these things too. So um, I'll share a like above this video, so please uh, go out and check that out. And let me mention one more time. I mentioned this the past uh, two weeks, but um, we'd love to take your questions. And next next week, we had planned to devote the entire episode to answering viewer questions. Um, we've had some comments, but so far, no specific questions. And of course, we'll have our own topic if we don't get any questions. But uh, we would love to to answer your questions. We we want uh, um, we'd love for this to be a two way conversation. So please. Um, just drop a note below and let us know what you're wondering about, and Tom will do his best to answer it. Yeah, I will
1: try, I will try, and if and if there are no questions, I have a few things up my sleeve that we can do, so one way or another, I'll be here next week to either answer your questions or to do a surprise topic, so...
0: Or maybe I'll come up with my own... Um, question tom that you have to answer on the spot Ooh. and uh it would just bring me great joy to just stump <laughs> you and watch you struggle well, well
1: that wouldn't be the last of the last first time that's happened you right know. so <laughs> i'll see what i can come up with <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we'd love to get
0: your questions in so um all right well, well we'll move on to our topic here today and i don't know if there's anything else that you want to add tom about the significance of mount
1: sinai Well, as far as um, the significance of Mount Sinai, it is one of the, like you were saying, Steve, it is one of the foundational events of the history of the nation of Israel. And in fact, the Bible compares to what happened to Israel at Mount Sinai to Israel at that point being married to God, that God was the husband and Israel was the wife. And unfortunately, Israel wasn't a very faithful wife to God, mm-hmm. yet God was totally faithful to Israel. And so it is foundational, it is important, it's a significant event. The law was given, other things were given too. But it's one of those places that, you know, people want to know where Mount Sinai is. Mm-hmm. And who can blame them? All these important stuff happened there, We. Christians and even non-Christians alike are interested in the location of Sinai. Now, what we see in the Bible, especially in chapters like Exodus chapter 13 through to 19 and in Numbers 33, we see that after Israel left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, there's a list of places given. Now, some of them are very hard to pronounce and, you know, are difficult to figure out where they are. But what we see is that God gave Moses, you could say, an itinerary of all the places they stopped on going from Egypt to Sinai. And so when Moses wrote the law, and I believe Moses wrote the five books of, five, first five books of the Old Testament, it was clear that these weren't made-up places. These weren't places that were just fiction. These were real geographical places that in the ancient world people would have known about but the problem is is people say okay then we have this list of places we know they must have taken a route to mount sinai but where exactly was that route and ultimately where was mount sinai now the issue is with the location of mount sinai is this is that The events of the Exodus and the journey to Sinai took place over 3,400 years ago. And so that makes it extremely difficult to pinpoint the exact route and location of Sinai. Because, you know, that would be like, um, you know, say, 3,400 years in the future. And, you know, we have a a list of directions from one place, say, from where we're recording this to Dublin today. You know, you could, say, go from A to B and from B to C and so on. But in that amount of time, things might have changed. Places may not exist. The names may have changed and so on. So it's very hard to pinpoint an exact route. But what we do know is, is that over the years, they have been contending places for the exact location of Mount Sinai. Now, if you were to go to Egypt today, you would go on a guided tour and they were to take you to what what is called Mount Sinai. They would take you to a place in the Sinai Peninsula, which is called um, uh, Jebel Musa. And below Jebel Musa, Jebel Musa actually in Arabic means um, the mountain of Moses. So that's literally what it means, the Mount of Moses. Mm. And below Jebel Musa, there's St. Catherine's Monastery. And so if you were to go on a tour, like I said, and they said, we're going to Mount Sinai today, that's where they would take you. Mm. Now, for a long time, from at least the 4th century AD, that has been the traditional site for Mount Sinai. But the question is, is the traditional site the biblical site? Because we have to be careful here. Just because tradition says one thing, does it square up with what the Bible says? Now, sometimes I will say, quite honestly, that tradition does square up with what the Bible says. But we have to be hesitant because sometimes tradition does not square up with the Scriptures. So you have a conflict. So which wins out? Does the Bible or <coughs> tradition? Yeah, Tom, I was going to ask, um, you know, I haven't been to
0: Egypt or the Sinai Peninsula or yeah. Jebel Musa, um, but have I heard correctly that when you go there, it's just not very impressive to look at, like, what you have in your mind, it just doesn't quite match
1: up with the biblical story? Well, I, I personally, I've actually never been to Jebel Musa. I think I wouldn't, could have had the opportunity one time, I unfortunately didn't take it. It is on my to-do list. But... It is an impressive sight. There is a big mountain there in called, like I said, Jebel Musa. At the bottom of it, there is a very old monastery. In fact, if you go into the monastery, there's a lot of old churches, a lot of old buildings. And in fact, there's even a bush in the monastery building, which supposedly is the bush that God spoke, that God used to speak to Moses. The burning bush. The burning wow. bush. So wow survived all this time yeah well that's what's claimed <laughs> okay. but it's an impressive site it is it you can actually even go up on top of jebel musa and and it's very popular to see the sunrise from jebel musa mm. so it's an impressive place but even though it is impressive is it the biblical site now a lot of people will argue and say yes it is of course it is but does it have the scriptural and historical and archaeological support to back up that idea Mm. There's nothing necessarily wrong with tradition but does it square up with scriptures?
0: Well, and I think if you if you were an archaeologist and you were going out looking for biblical evidence and you believe that that was the site you would be looking around there right yeah. for evidence of yeah. large groups of people having Ex- lived there. Exactly.
1: Uh, yeah. And you just don't find it. Yeah, well that's an interesting point actually because because the nation of Israel, of course, which was refounded in the 1940s as an independent Jewish nation, of course, they fought several wars. One was, of course, the Six Days War. And at the end of the Six Day War, you know what? They actually had taken control of the Sinai Peninsula. And what they did is they did an archaeological survey in and around Jebel Musa to see was there any archaeological evidence to point to the fact that the nation of israel stayed there like the old testament records and when they did it they found out that they couldn't find any Mm -hmm. now that in itself does not prove Mm -hmm. anything because previously we mentioned in the podcast with the patriarchs that a nomadic people is very likely to leave very little physical evidence behind Mm -hmm. but as far as they could tell they found nothing whatsoever okay and so that sort of put a question mark above their heads because if you were there for at least a, a number of months as the Bible tells, tells us they were, you would think you'd find something. And it was such a large group of people, huge. Yeah, yeah. We're talking millions yeah. millions of people that, that would have been there. Yeah, if you believed the scriptural numbers, which I do, it would be about two to three million. Mm-hmm. But yet they found nothing, and so that discouraged them. Yeah. But like I said, that's the traditional site. Now, I will add... There are other sites that have been proposed for Mount Sinai. In fact, off the top of my head, including Jebel Musa, there would be five, five sites. Some closer to Egypt and some further away from Egypt. Now, Jebel Musa is the traditional site. Though in recent times, there has been another contender for Mount Sinai being in what we would know as Arabia. Or modern day Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. That's Jebel al Laws. Now Jebel al Laws literally means the Mount of Almonds. You know, sometimes people mm. say laws, that's laws, law of Moses. No, it's just the Arabic word for almonds. Oh, okay. So there are other places, but recently there, you know, most people would either side with the traditional site or possibly Jebel al Laws. And so there is a lot of discussion about the site of Mount Sinai and I'm not surprised at that and it does have a lot of strong opinions you know there's a lot okay. been a lot of arguments a lot of controversy about it people have settled opinions and they yeah. argue for it Yeah and it's very important to a lot of people because where you put Mount Sinai changes the route of the Exodus mm. so if the Exodus is closer to Egypt then the Exodus route is different. If you put in the Sinai Peninsula, Jebel Musa, it changes the route. If it's in Saudi Arabia, then that changes the route even further. So you see there's a connection here.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, the, and uh, it, it's important because it really changes the um, the size of the Red Sea, sea crossing yeah. event. Exactly. If it were the traditional Mount Sinai, we're looking at a very small yeah. Crossing, I mean, a crossing of a very small body of water. Whereas, if we're looking at the Saudi Arabia location, we're looking at huge body of water that they had to cross. Exactly. And so, it makes that crossing miracle. It really changes the nature of that Red Sea crossing miracle.
1: Yeah, where you, it's like it's like you said, where you believe Mount Sinai is does change where you believe that the Red Sea is. Mm -hmm. Now. I don't know about you, but when I read the biblical account of the Exodus, you have this um, idea of the Red Sea crossing being a mighty miracle. Walls of water on the left hand on the right side, the nation of Israel going through it, and Pharaoh and his chariots following in and being wiped out. And you know, apparently that a lot of people today get that impression because they've watched the Ten Commandments with and Heston. Yeah. But if you read the biblical account, that is also what the biblical account implies very strongly: walls of water into the yeah. deep. It's not just marshland or no. puddles or small ponds no. or lakes. No, I would. This is, no. we're talking big. No, yeah, I would. I would agree. I would agree very strongly with that. But see, in recent times, because of the fact that a lot of people have put the, put Mount Sinai at the traditional location, that has caused some deal, uh, some amount of problems and controversy as to where the Red Sea is. Now, I'll touch on that here in a few minutes. But firstly, we, just to deal with some of the evidence as to why it appears that the traditional site of Mount Sinai is not the place. And you may say, well, how do we know it's not the place? You know, it's been a traditional site for nearly close on two millennia. So what evidence is there to show that this isn't the place? You know, if you think you believe something for 2,000 years, it has to be true. Well, first off, that's a problem. Because the tradition of that mountain being Mount Sinai only came about for, for that first that we know of is in the 4th century A.D., in fact, the first mentions written down evidence that it was believed that that was Sinai came from a female pilgrim called Eregria who visited that mountain in the 4th century AD and said that that was Mount Sinai. That's the first written evidence that points out that that was Sinai. So that was, that was far, far removed, yeah. like
0: 2,000 years removed from yeah. the actual events. It's centuries later. So we can't place too much
1: wheat on that. Exactly. Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't disprove the idea, but at the same time, it makes you wonder, hmm, that's very late. That's far removed from the events of the Exodus, which go back to the 15th century BC. So you can see the disconnect. That's an awful long time after the events of the Exodus to claim that that was Mount Sinai. Also, just another issue too, is remembering the Exodus account, Moses was driven out of Egypt because he slew an Egyptian. He murdered an Egyptian.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the thing is, if if you were Moses and you were in Moses' sandals and you were wanting to leave Egypt, you wouldn't want to get as far away from Egypt as possible because there would be a, probably a death sentence on your head mm-hmm. if you came back. Now, the argument often is given forth that, you know, the Sinai Peninsula wasn't directly controlled by Egypt. That's true. The Egyptians never fully considered that part of the world as Egypt. It wasn't, you could say, Egypt proper. Mm. But what we do know is that e- the Egyptians did have a lot of interest in that region because there were mining operations there. In fact, nearby uh, nearby to Mount Sinai, they found like copper mines and bronze mines. <laughs> and mining operations going on near that region. So the Egyptians were there. They just didn't sort of claim it as, a, as their own. It was nominally theirs. And so if you were Moses, you wouldn't want to be anywhere near a place where there just might be Egyptians who might find you out and hand you over to the authorities. Right. You'd go make sure you were outside the borders of any Egyptian influence, however far you had to go. And what the Bible tells us is, is Moses fled to a place called Midian. Now, Midian was its own distinct nation, its own distinct country outside of the borders of Egypt. Now, there over the years, there's been a lot of controversy and debate as to where Midian is. But most the consensus today is, is that Midian is in what is modern, what is now modern-day northwest Saudi Arabia.
0: Hmm.
1: So it's not in the Sinai Peninsula. It's not in Egypt. It's in Saudi Arabia. So if you were to look on a map, you would see Egypt. You'd see the Gulf of Suez. You'd see the Sinai Peninsula. There's another Gulf, the Gulf of Aqaba. And then it goes over to what is now modern-day Saudi Arabia. That is where it's believed Midian was. And the reason that's significant is because
0: uh, Moses fled there, like you said, and really started a family there and set up his life there um, until the Lord appeared to him and said, go back to Egypt, I have a job for you to do to take my people out of Israel. And so the relation to Mount Sinai is that Uh, Moses would have gone back to the place that he was familiar with. Yeah, exactly. And so the the place of Midian becomes very important
1: for the location of Mount Sinai. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, he lived in Midian, the Bible tells us, for 40 years as a shepherd. And what we see is is that the Midianites, they were nomadic pastoralists. In other words, they would take their sheep to places and cattle where there was food available, grazing ground, grazing ground for their animals and livestock. Now, if you look on a map, the idea that Moses travelled all the way from northwestern Saudi Arabia up to the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, all the way then then south into the Sinai Peninsula to get to what is Jebel Musa today, that's an awful long way for a man to take his sheep. You know, now pastoralists and nomads can travel a long distance, but that is an awful long distance to go. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very out of the way. Yeah, You know, they would travel distances, but that seems to be, in my mind, pushing it a little bit. Oh, yeah. So that's, yeah, another reason. Also, one of the problems is, is that in modern mindset today, it's believed very commonly that the Red Sea crossing took place in the region of uh, the northern t- the northern end of the Gulf of Suez, today where the Suez Canal is. Actually, there's two canals there. I only learned that a few years ago. There used to be one, now there's two. Mm. But in that region, that's where it's believed by a lot of scholars and academics is where somewhere the Red Sea crossing took place. Now, that opinion has ch- has changed somewhat. Not in the general region, but where exactly that crossing could have took place. In the 19th century, it was commonly believed that uh, the Red Sea crossing took place at the northern tip of the Gulf of Suez, Mm. into deep water. But then that changed. Modern-day academic thinking is that the Red Sea crossing took place in what they believe was a shallow inland lake. Mm. Now, the problem is with that is is if you read the bible if you just take the bible for what it's saying if you take it as a historical narrative you get this impression a very clear impression i believe and very sound impression that israel was surrounded by mountains they were trapped they were also going into a very deep sea during the red sea crossing but if you were to go to the, you know, if you were to see the, the region of the Gulf of Suez, where, and, uh, where, the, where the Suez canals are today, what you find is, is that area is basically flat. And yes, there were lakes, but they weren't very deep. You
0: know, and why would they have gone through, why would they have gone out of their way to go through water if there were, was a nearby land route?
1: yeah that doesn't make any sense yeah exactly and that's the thing you know as one person i remember said you know why go through a lake why not just go around it right and you know the impression you also get is when pharaoh went in with his chariots they were trying to catch up with the gyps Mm -hmm. well could they not have just gone around right and caught them on the other side of the red sea if it was just a lake Right, if
0: it were just a lake, they didn't have to follow the children of Israel through the sea. Yeah, in fact, on chariots and things like that, it would have been faster to go yeah. the known yeah. land route.
1: Yeah, they probably and they would have caught up with them. You know, it wouldn't have been much of a diversion, and it would have made more sense. Right, so it doesn't really fit the biblical story. Yeah, and so that's you see, and a lot of that idea comes about not from what the Bible says, but a lot of it has come about because of more modern liberal criticism of the Bible. It's not based on a on a belief that the scripture is God's word but rather that it's based on the belief that the bible is just yet another infallible infa- uh, human document that cannot be depended upon. And that's the problem with these modern day positions. And also it's
0: really starting with the idea that there can't be miracles. Yes. And so if there is no miracle of the red sea crossing we have to find out um Another explanation for it.
1: And that's why they say an inland lake. The wind could have blown the water around, or they could have waded through, or it's just an exaggeration. But yet the Bible, I believe, makes it very clear. It was a deep sea. They were surrounded. They couldn't escape. The only way forward was through a deep red sea. Right. And so I believe that 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 idea is just not biblical. Right. Also, another argument that's been put forth recently by academics in support of the idea that Israel went through a shallow inland lake rather than a deep sea is based upon the idea coming from Egyptology. Now, Egyptology is just the study of all things Egyptians, especially ancient Egyptian. But they make a connection between the idea that in Egyptian, there was a word used for reeds, which is called Tufi. Now, in Hebrew, the word for the Red Sea is diyamsuf, or the Yam Suf, or as we would translate it today, the Red Sea. And so, what a lot of scholars do is they see an apparent similarity between the word Suf and Tufi. And so, they basically argue and say, well, look, the words are similar. Therefore, what happened is is that the Israelites took that word "tofi" from Egyptian and made turned it over to the oh, when they made a, when they were talking about the Red Sea and made it into re and in, made it into the Red Sea. Oh, and, and retold it and embellished. Yeah, yeah, basically. Okay. So they just they say that basically they took the words and adapted it to their own use. And so, therefore, it's not Red Sea, it's Reed Sea. Now, you can see that, in fact, in some maps, like especially relating to biblical geography, and they may have a phrase like, instead of the Red Sea, they have the Reed Sea. Mm. But that's not based entirely upon the Hebrew. That is based upon the idea that the Hebrews borrowed words from the Egyptians. And that argument is put forth to argue that the Israelites went through a shallow inland lake. And so you see the issue there. They're, yeah. they're trusting more on what Egyptology says rather than what the Bible says. Okay. And you can see an issue there. That's, and you know, Egyptology isn't bad, but you can see their foundation is to question the Bible constantly and to use anything else as an authoritative source of information. Mm. Yeah. And another simple thing that they do to try to argue that the Red Sea is in that region is that the Red Sea in the Bible is in multiple places. They say the Red Sea is in the Gulf of Aqaba. They say the Red Sea is the Gulf of Suez. They say the Red Sea is the inland lakes. Mm. And so they keep moving the goalposts. And they say, you know, the Hebrews had a very loose meaning for Red Sea and it could mean multiple places. Hmm. But that doesn't make sense even in the ancient world. No, that doesn't make sense. You know, that's like saying, you know, the Irish Sea can be wherever you want it to be. Right. It doesn't have to be just between Ireland and Wales. It's also in the Indian Sea. You know, that's just arguing out of convenience. It makes the name meaningless, really. Yeah. And in the Bible, you see that when they give names names to places, it's solid. Now, the names can change over time, but they don't do that because it would just be simply confusing right and there's a good reason why they don't do that as well it's because the bible is very clear as to where the location of the red sea is in fact in passages like exodus chapter 23 verse 31 and first kings chapter 9 verse 26 the bible outlines the borders of the land of israel so it tells you it goes basically from uh, the River Euphrates in the north down to the Red Sea, across to the Sea of the Philistines, which is the Mediterranean, and up back towards the River Euphrates. And, and,
0: we, and we know what the southern edge of Israel is, yeah, and it, yeah it's the modern-day Red Sea, yeah, and or the, or the Gulf, Gulf of Aqaba,
1: yeah. And the Bible makes it very clear that the Red Sea was a border uh, and a border point for the land of israel mm. yeah now if the red sea was wherever you wanted it to be that would make nonsense of what these verses are saying because right. if the red sea is a north, is a inland lake near egypt then that wouldn't make sense or it's at the northern end of the suez um the gulf of suez mm. or you know it just does not make sense right It's just trying to move things around to confuse the issue, I believe. Yeah. Also, other sort of evidence as to back up uh, Sinai um, not being in the Sinai Peninsula is that Josephus, a much later on historian, first century Jewish historian, writes about the Exodus and writes about what happened at the Red Sea. And he also concurs with what the Bible says. That the Israelites were stuck between mountains and between a deep sea. Pharaoh so army was coming up behind them, which had trapped them in. Mm. And so Josephus also believed the idea that the that the Red Sea crossing was at a deep like at a deep sea, in a mountainous region, which couldn't be in the region of the Suez Canals. It just does not fit the picture given both in the bible and also even in later jewish historians right and so you you see these incongruities here it doesn't make much sense other even in the new testament in the book of galatians the bible tells us that the apostle paul at the start just before he started his public ministry the lord sent him into array into to sinai which is Arabia. He was sent to the land of Arabia, where the Bible pinpoints in the New Testament that Mount Sinai was in the land of Arabia. Mm,
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: And just for some more extra-biblical sources now, these come from about the same time period as when um, uh, that female pilgrim was writing about Sinai being in the Sinai Peninsula. You have church patristics, from the 3rd and 4th century, these were early uh, writers who wrote about Christianity, very early in the history of Christianity, like Origen and Jerome and Eusebius. They further claim that Midian was located within northwestern Arabia, modern-day Saudi Arabia, east of the Gulf of Aqaba, not the Gulf of Suez. And so when you put these ancient and more relatively more modern pieces together i believe it just dismisses the idea that that sinai was in the sinai peninsula Mm. and so it sort of throws out that idea so when you compare that basically the main leg that jebel moose that jebel moose in the sinai peninsula has is based mostly on tradition mostly on well we've believed this for so long Therefore, it has to be true. And a lot of scholars and a lot of academics have a lot invested in that position. Mm. Because if you change Sinai, then that changes the route. And if it changes the route, that changes an awful lot of books. That changes an awful lot of articles. That, yeah. You know, it, yeah. they've got a lot invested in it. Would you say but, overall the, the spotlight
0: is is kind of shifting to Saudi Arabia?
1: Yeah, recently it has. Now there have been some, like even during the eighties and the nineties, and even earlier than that, that suggested that Mount Sinai was in Saudi Arabia. I you mean, know, are there some big academics and archaeologist stuff behind that, <sighs> or or is this some um, uh, kind of lay? It, it's uh, more it, people. There are fewer. the The vast majority of academics hold to Mount Sinai being in the Sinai Peninsula. But that's more, I believe, more so just based on that's what has always been believed. And, you know, you don't want to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been people, some who have been somewhat questionable, who have posited Sinai being in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. But the problem is a lot of more solid, reasonable people have come out and said that Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. And you know, for one, for an instance, one person that really sort of put uh, was, who his point of view and how he how he presented the idea put put people off and believing in um, uh, Sinai being in Arabia is a guy called Ron Wyatt. Now, Ron Wyatt he argued that the that the Red Sea crossing was at the Gulf of Aqaba and that Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. But because of a lot of his claims and how he went about doing things, that sort of put a lot of academics off. There was others too, and so. Oh, they, <clears throat> so he didn't have like real high credibility. No, no, no. Though personally, I believe a lot of his conclusions were quite reasonable and sound, but just how he did things and how he went about presenting his evidence and some of his more extraordinary claims, really sort of put people off the idea oh, Okay, but he's not the only one there there have been others who have been far more qualified and more academic and more professional in their approach mm-hmm. there's for instance there's an author who i would encourage people to read a guy called glenn fritz who's wrote a book on the red sea and on mount sinai You know, and I don't agree with him on everything 100%, but he lays out the geographical and logical evidence to point to Sinai being in Arabia. Okay. And and there are others too who have posited that idea. And in fact, there's a lot of other authors who have argued that, who have said that Sinai, they may not believe it's in Arabia, but they believe it's somewhere else within the Sinai Peninsula closer to Egypt, closer to the Gulf of Aqaba. so that doesn't really help us out with the
0: stuff you've already mentioned. No,
1: it doesn't. But what it shows is is that the argument isn't settled. Right, okay. But the main reason why the traditional Sinai is given and basically believed so strongly is because of its long-standing as being a traditional site. But as we've seen, you know, based upon the biblical evidence and I believe also geographical evidence and more ancient sources, I believe, you know, it's just not reasonable to come to that conclusion. Mm
0: -hmm. So do you have a theory about the actual location of the crossing?
1: Yes. I believe that there is, in the Gulf of Aqaba, if you were to look on a map, there is a place there called Nueva. Now, Nueva is basically a big beachy area on the western side of the Gulf of Aqaba. And it's an interesting point because what you see is, is that in ancient times, the only way to get to this big, this beach was through a very thin wadi. Now, a wadi is a dry riverbed. It's like a seasonal riverbed. You know, if it rains in that region it will fill up with water and it will, you know, it will flow for a little bit, then it will of course it will dry up and it will be dry again. But to get to this area you have to go through this very thin and twist and waddy. And once you reach the end of it, you come to New and it's this big beach. And there's no and in ancient times there was no way to leave that. If the wadi was blocked up, if someone was coming up behind you, say, Pharaoh and his chariots, you couldn't escape. You couldn't go to the left because there were mountains. You couldn't go to the right, there's mountains. You couldn't go forward because there's a big red sea ahead of you. Mm. So, therefore... So,
0: that's a strongly plausible location.
1: It makes sense, and it's just as what the Bible describes. A mountainous region. Israel was stuck there. Pharaoh had blocked them off from escape. They couldn't go forward because the Red Sea was there. They couldn't go to the right or to the left because of the mountains. Josephus also points that out too.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the comment from the Israelites there in the Old Testament when they see yeah. Egypt coming. Moses, you brought us here to die. Yeah. Basically, they, they were trapped.
1: Yeah. yeah. And what is interesting to note too is, you know, if you from reading Dr. uh, Glenn Fritz's book, is you see that he has done a study on that region. And the sea is deep there. You know, it is very deep. But what he noticed is, based on different tests that have been done in that region, is that it is possible that if that sea was dried up in that region, just as the Bible says, the slope would be manageable for a nation to pierce through.
0: Interesting.
1: I think about seven degrees. Oh, gradual slope yeah. down into the river, into the riverbed, yeah. into the seabed. Yeah. So basically, it's gradual, and then it goes back up. Now, it would be work to do it, but we have to remember too that the Israelites were motivated. They were running for their lives. Yeah. They were being pushed to get out of Egypt, mm-hmm. and so and these were people too that, that were had incentive and they were also used to hardship they had been slaves and in bondage in egypt for a long time Mm -hmm. and so it would would have been manageable and the bible tells us tells us in the account that god blocked off pharaoh from letting from following them into the red sea so obviously god only unblocked that when the nation was nearly completely through And, of course, Pharaoh goes in. He chases after them. And what does God do? He brings the sea back on top of their heads. Mm -hmm. And that's Pharaoh and his army of chariots gone with Israel safely on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that is the most logical place to do that. It fits. You know, if it fits Mm -hmm. the biblical uh, uh, description, it's feasible, it's possible, it's logical, then why not? Right. The only reason why not is because people have believed the traditional site is the site, mm-hmm. If and so you have another
0: preconceived yeah.
1: notion of what it has to be, then, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: but otherwise, yeah, I, I agree, if it's the the biblical narrative.
1: Yeah. Now, like I said, too, you know, I believe that's the, I do believe that that's the crossing point, personally. As well, though, you know, some people have argued and said, well, you know, the Bible says that the, the, dis, that, you know Israel when they left Egypt and they got to the Red Sea that they camped twice. They had two camps, one at Succoth and one at Etham. And they say, well, you know that implies that it must be pretty close to Egypt. Now the thing is, people argue and would say, oh well, you know, if, uh, if Egypt, if the Israelites were traveling with old people and with young people and with animals, then they couldn't go very quick. Well, firstly, though, the problem with that is, is, one, animals, when they need to be pushed, they can be pushed. And they can go long distances without rest and without even eating. Now, of course, that's not healthy for them over the long run, mm-hmm. but they can do it. Yeah. Also, what about the old people and the, and the children? Well, they had wagons. They had carts. Yeah, the Bible they, says that. Mm-hmm. They, they could put them on top of the animals. Yeah. So you're not talking about the whole nation on foot. And they had great incentive to leave. Mm-hmm. The Bible constantly says that they were on on a flight from Egypt. In other right. words, they were getting out of there as quick as they could. East, yeah. And what we need to the conclusion that you know has been made. oh, well, uh, it had to be close to um, uh, the Gulf of uh, the Gulf of Suez because there was there was two camps, so that took three days. But that's an assumption we that's assuming that they traveled one day set up a camp took their camp down traveled again set up a camp took the camp down traveled and then they reached red sea Mm -hmm. but it's also possible that they just fled for as long as they could when they were tired they needed to rest they stopped and then they did the same thing again. And I think an interesting parallel in in the book of Genesis is the story of Jacob when he fled from his uncle Laban in Haran. Okay. And you read that account and the Bible tells us that Jacob had a little bit of a head start. He was running because he was sick and tired of being with Laban who was robbing him and cheating him. And so he leaves to go back to the land of Canaan. Now, Haran is in southeast Turkey today and the region where Jacob was gone was in Canaan in fact in the land of Gilead within the vicinity of Canaan that's about 500 miles roughly give or take mm-hmm. and the Bible tells us that Jacob with his family and with his animals and with his household did that distance in 10 days from Haran To Gilead, near Canaan, in 10 days. That's roughly... Turkey
0: down into Israel in 10 days with a family, with all of his goods and flocks and everything.
1: And that's about 50 miles a day. Wow. Now, that would be an extreme push. That's pushing. And why would Jacob do that? Because he had the incentive. He wanted to get away as quickly as he could. But that's a good
0: point. It shows that it can be done. It can. And in this case, in the case of the, the children of Israel, it was a larger, much larger group of people, but it could be done.
1: It could be done. And they had good reason to flee.
0: And here's here's a question that I've always kind of had in my mind. Moses knew how to get to Midian. He had yeah. been there before. He lived there. He knew it. Yeah. Why, why in the world would he lead the children of Israel down into a place where they would get trapped, why didn't he take the northern route and just go
1: around the Red Sea? Why didn't he go that way? Well, firstly, I believe that was his intent. You see, originally in that time period, there were three major trade routes, international roads that went through what is now the northern end of the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt to other parts of the world, like, say, Babylon or Arabia. The first northern route was the Roman name for it was the Via Maris or the Way of Horus. That's the Egyptian name or the Way of the Philistines. But mm-hmm. God told Israel not to go that way. So they didn't go that way. That was the quickest way to Canaan from Egypt. But God okay. says, no, don't go there because the Israelites will be put off by their warlike nature of the Egyptians and possibly bumping into the Philistines now on the way. So God says, oh, yeah. don't. There was another road that went m- was south of that, which was the middle route that went to the way of Shure. Now, you know, and even in today's uh, way of saying things, we would often call a road by the, the, the destination of that road. So you say, I live in a place and I want to go to Dublin, where you would say the road to Dublin. Mm hmm or the road to new york you know we intend to name names and roads by where we're going to or yeah. where it ends or its destination and that's what they did in the ancient world too hmm. they would say the way of the way to sure but there was also a southern route which is the way the way to the red the way of the red sea okay and so that led to where you mean that went down along the eastern
0: side of the yeah. of the gulf?
1: Yeah, so you, what you would see, it would go down from Egypt through the northern end of the Sinai Peninsula to the top of the Gulf of Aqaba and then south towards Midian and Arabia. And so that,
0: that would be the logical way yeah. that you would think the children visitor would go
1: yeah. if Sinai is in Arabia. Yeah, and personally speaking, that's probably where Moses was going. He was heading for that one. Okay. But the Bible is very clear that after they camped at Ephraim, which possibly could be at the northern end of the Gulf of Aqaba, God clearly tells the nation of Israel, you need to turn aside and go this way. Hmm. So I think Moses was going the normal way, the way everyone would sense would have gone. Hmm. But then God says, no, go this way, through this narrow gorge, to the Red Sea. And why would God have told him that? Well, because he you know, was...
0: Well, don't, been, don't go the easy route, Moses. Yeah. Take, take this hard route. Why would he have
1: said that? Well, firstly, he, firstly, I believe he was doing it to show Israel that he was God. Yeah. And to deliver them, and to deliver them in such a way that they would always remember it. And, and, to, and to finish off the total destruction of Egypt, exactly. right? Exactly. That would have been the way to, to totally take out Pharaoh and his armies. Exactly. And so this is what we see. Like, God, you know, sensibly, they would have just taken the road, which is what they always tried to do. Later on, the nation of Israel, when they were going to the land of Canaan, they wanted to go through the land of Edom and Moab. Where did Moses want to go through? Mm. He wanted to go on the king's highway, the main road, the highway. But Edomites and the Moabites wouldn't let him. And so he couldn't. So he had to go a longer way. So Moses wasn't a silly man. If he could take the sensible route, he did. And I believe he was taking the sensible route until God says, stop, Moses, go this way. Why, God? You'll see. Mm. In other words, I believe he was testing the faith of the nation of Israel, and he was also showing them what he he was going to show them his deliverance. And then they get down
0: there to Nueva, and then here come the... The Pharaoh's armies, they've got the sea there, and then they start crying, Moses, why did you do this? Yeah, we're dead. Yep,
1: and And it's time for God to act exactly. And you know, the thing is, that has been imprinted into the mind of the Jewish nation, and I believe that was one of God's reasons for doing it to show that He was God. And that Israel was his nation, and that he could do whatever he liked to yeah, help them. That's what the that's
0: what the Israelites are known for. Exactly. I mean, that's that's probably the big the big event that they're known for, right? Yeah. The
1: Red Sea crossing, exactly. huge. And so, therefore, I can I would conclude that Mount Sinai is at the is in the mountain range there in what was the land of Midian and Jebel Al Laws, mm-hmm. around that region. So we don't know, I believe, the exact mountain. Josephus does mention that Mount Sinai was the highest peak was the highest peak in the region. So it was the highest mountain. And that region where Jabal al-Lawz is consists of the highest mountains in that area. Hmm. So we're not so sure it's likely one of
0: those. yeah, somewhere we'll near know the exactly part.
1: which one, but exactly. So hmm. I believe when you look you read what the Bible says, you read its descriptions. And you just, you know, think about it logically and put putting aside the traditional site of Sinai, I believe the only sensible conclusion to draw is that the, the Red Sea crossing took place at the Gulf of Aqaba, at Nueva, and at Mount Sinai is in today northwestern Saudi Arabia. Mm. And in fact, there have been some findings around Jebel laws in Saudi Arabia that may suggest physical evidence for the nation of Israel being in that region. Yeah, and there's some very
0: interesting if if you go out and look on on YouTube for Jebel El Laws there's stuff that really makes you scratch your head.
1: Yeah, there have been structures found there, there's things that are, you know, you look at and you think, I wonder what that is. Now the Saudi Arabian government did do excavations there Mm. but they're very reluctant to sort of release information on that. can imagine yeah (laughs) Yeah. so they're
0: they're not exactly pro-israel
1: no and in fact only until recent times they haven't even uh, encouraged foreign travel there and so i believe there is good evidence to point to that region being where sinai is wow yeah Yeah. that's this is fascinating to Mm. me so it just i just suppose you know at the end of the day you people may say well does it really matter well at the end of the day it just i think shows us that What's more important, tradition, and what the academic and scholarship academics of this world and scholars of this world say, or do we put our faith in what the Bible says, and then just apply common sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think it goes back to kind of what you were talking about the first week when you said what ar- the role of archaeology is—it's painting this richer picture of yeah. the Bible—and uh, and even though we're not talking archaeology here, we're talking about the logical. Um, route of the Israelites and the location—it yeah. uh, in your mind, this becomes plausible. Like it, it's no longer, um, you know, implausible. This Red Sea crossing—you can actually see how it happened—and yeah, so. And so it's uh, it's kind of sub- substantiating or raising the plausibility of the whole Exodus story. Exactly. So exactly. this is fascinating. Right. Right. So. Yeah. Okay, well, um, I, I'm sure there's more that could be said about this. Uh, if you have follow-up questions, let's address it next week, Tom. Um, and uh, you know, if there are other questions, you know, I know there's, for example, one outstanding story from the Old Testament is is Jericho, and yeah. in fact, there have been es- excavations of a of the. What people believe is the location of Jericho today and uh, the walls that came tumbling down. If you have questions like that, you know, there are a lot of um, very interesting things that we could talk about next week. Leave it in the comments. Um, We'll we'll try to hit on your topic that you're interested in. But um, all right. Well, thank you, Tom. Um, Third week in a row here. I've learned a lot. And I'm looking forward to what we'll come up with next week. I am going to come up with a stumper question for you. So I'm going to have to wreck my brain for next week. I look forward to that. uh, And then see if I can watch you squirm. (laughs) 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 That'll be my goal for next week. Hopefully I I can answer you. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, well, thank you again. And um, be sure to check out uh, Tom's YouTube channel. And so we'll see you next week.